Dagon's Illusion, Episode 29, Talking with Eustace. At the exact moment that Dagon left the prison courtyard, he re-entered his body lying on the bunk in the penitentiary at Marion, Illinois. Sitting up, he groaned and rubbed his eyes. It felt as though he had taken a long nap. He looked at his watch. Only six hours had passed. Suddenly all hell broke loose. Guards rushed in and jerked him to his feet. Then they dragged him off for what became days of feverish interrogation. The warden demanded to know where he had been and how he had gotten out of his cell without being seen. Then he demanded to know how he had gotten back in his cell without being seen. When Dagon protested that he hadn't gone anywhere, he had been asleep on his cot, they showed him security video. One minute he was lying asleep, and the next he was gone. But there was a two-second gap in the tape. Just before he vanished, the image turned to snow. Clearly, it was the greatest trick that Robert Dagon had ever performed, and he had no idea how he had done it. Had his body actually left the cell, or had it turned invisible? Never had such a thing happened to him before, and never did it happen afterward. During the hours of his absence, he had lived years. Of course, he told the authorities nothing. What could he tell them that they would believe? and the media went insane. Once more, he was a grocery store tabloid sensation. Magician murderer vanishes from Supermax prison, then returns. That was the headline. From that moment, life changed forever for Robert Dagan. While the chaos roared, he had sat chained in his cell with a guard watching him day and night. Everyone thought his silence was part of a mysterious act. It wasn't. He was in shock. While he looked the same on the outside, inside he was a decade older, and that decade had been brutal. Worse, there was no one in the world that he could talk to about what had happened. In his loneliness, Dagon understood a terrible reality. Whether a man lived in one world or a hundred, he was a single soul. And in that soul lived an eternal weight of memory. All the foulness that he had committed in Melissa Marin's world lay on his spirit like pus in a gangrenous wound. Above all else, he longed for the woman who forgave so much that her forgiveness meant nothing. For months in the Supermax prison, he had stared at nothing, never saying a word unless he was asked a question. Then Ellison Carter had orchestrated his amazing release, and he had been shunted back into life but the isolation stayed with him. In that awful period, he had remained withdrawn, refusing to be seen, barely sleeping or eating, drifting on the edge of sanity. He wanted to confess his sins, but to whom? Should he blurt out to a priest or psychiatrist that in another dimension he had been a Civil War general, guilty of heinous debauchery and bloody murders? The story lacked even the sophistication of being a truly original delusion to say nothing of the new padded cell to which it would lead. So alone he struggled with a past that had never existed in this world. Slowly over the course of a year, a semi-functioning personality had been cobbled from the shattered mess inside his skull. For that, he could thank Ellie. With supreme chutzpah, she had barged straight into his desolation with a thousand aggravating trivialities. And within the crucible of the mundane, he had found himself. Oddly, during that slow reintegration of consciousness, he had stumbled upon a new war to fight as a lifelong act of contrition. 
Not that he believed in God, far from it. No God could exist and allow so many dimensions of evil. In this new war, he had sworn to remain on the side of truth as defined by what was good for others, not just for himself. That he would be arbiter of what was good for others was a minor glitch in his philosophy, but he wasn't daunted by small inconsistencies. As Ellison structured a new career for him from the cauldron of tabloid publicity, they had relocated to New Orleans. For many reasons, it was an appropriate choice. It fit with his new study of ancient mysteries. Then one day she had taken him to view a property that was for sale in the Garden District, a fixer-upper, but the price was good. To his amazed horror, they had walked straight into Melissa Marin's mansion. Standing in the foyer, it was as though someone had hit him in the head. When his senses returned, with them came a grim understanding. The fates had led him here, and he had no choice but to purchase the property. The rebuilding of the mansion had brought a string of disturbing little mysteries. An old box uncovered in the garden filled with letters in his handwriting sent from the battlefield to Anna. A rusted cavalry sword engraved with his initials pulled out when workmen were replacing the ballroom floor. In a wall of the slave quarters was found a ragged poster sent by the enemy announcing his hanging and inviting the public to attend the celebration. Apparently, Melissa Marin's slaves had been overjoyed. Everyone at the club had viewed these finds as hilarious and amazing that he shared his name with a Confederate general brought no end of fun. But oddest of all was something that only Ellie knew. Dagon was not his birth name. And as each new discovery was brought to him, he perceived the deep intertwining of dimensions. Through it all, Ellie remained silent. Now, years later, had come the strange journeys of this night. In them, he had seen Anna again, both alive and murdered. But how could he have returned to Melissa Marin's world after he had died in that world? Somewhere over there, the body of General Robert Dagan lay moldering. In the prison cell at Marion, his body had vanished. It was a mystery that he couldn't explain. But in all his journeys out of body, never had he passed into another world simply by opening a rusted door and walking through. In the damnable parlor of Corneal Moon, he had been injected with a poison that transcended dimensions that allowed the one who had given it to him to send him back into the past. He had relived a moment of childhood in the body of a child, but with the mind of a man. What was the answer to all of it? As Dagon climbed the stairs, one clear possibility came to mind. Maybe he was insane. But even if you are insane, you have to play the cards of reality that have been dealt to you. Leaving the stairs on the third floor, one particular reality focused Dagon's attention. He stank. He reeked like an open sewer. Suddenly there was nothing that he desired more than to be clean. Stumbling through the wind into his bedroom, he stripped off his clothes. Due to the excellent preparations by the city of New Orleans, there was no running water for washing in the bathroom, but the towels were damp from the rain and there was soap, so he managed to cleanse himself. When he was finished, he found a semi-dry towel in a drawer. The feeling of being almost clean was luxurious, and the simple act of washing had centered his awareness. Now to find clothes. Dagon's closet was the size of a small bedroom. All his clothes were damp, but at least they weren't fouled with sewage. Pulling out the driest shirt and pants he could find, he dressed himself. 
Though he was exhausted and his head still ached, being clean made him feel a little better. Walking into the shrieking chaos of his destroyed living room, he almost bumped into Eustace. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be up in the attic. Gone. Gone, gone. Gone, 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 gone. The huge man was in tears. Who's gone? Steffi, girl, girl. Can't find. Looked up, looked down. Can't find. Where's Staples? Up, up there. He pointed toward the ceiling. Come on. Dagan pulled him toward the stairs. When they entered the attic, they found Joshua sprawled on the couch asleep. Dagon pushed him with his shoe. Hey! Joshua jumped. What? Oh, it's you! He rubbed his eyes. I was dreaming that I was lying in a nice quiet alley behind a big McDonald's. Where's the girl? How the heck do I know she was gone when we got back? He pointed at the straight jacket on the floor. And I certainly am impressed with your restraint devices. Rock solid, if I may say so, sir. This blows my whole image of you as a world-class escapologist. Anyway, we searched all over up here, and Mr. Poopy Cleaner went to look for her down below. I see he didn't have no luck. Dagon turned to Eustace. Who was she? What's her name? Steffi. What's her last name? Eustace shrugged. I've never seen her at the club. Does she live near you? Nope, nope, nope. How do you know her, then? Dreams. You dreamed about her, and that's how you know her? Yep, yep. Staples grinned broadly. Would you say these dreams were kind of like a call? Through bloodshot eyes, Dagon glared at him. I am exhausted, my head is pounding, and I am trying to get some damn information, so cut the insanity. Eustace, did you bring her here? Pushed her, pushed her, long, long way, up, up the steps, then go do dirty, nasty job. What kind of dirty, nasty job? Make a big, nasty fly. Joshua sat back and steepled his fingers. I'll bet he was working for Homeland Security. Lots of big nasties flying these days. Dagon ignored him. Exactly where did you find her? Asleep. She was sleeping in a hurricane? Eustace nodded. Joshua sat up. She wasn't taking a little snooze in a coffin, was she? He doesn't know what a coffin is. How did you get her here? Big, big box. Float like a boat. All right, think hard. Where did you first find her asleep? Metal place. A metal place? Yep, metal. A wary look came into Joshua's eyes. Okay, now my advanced medical training tells me that does not sound good. It wasn't like a refrigerator, was it? Eustace stared at him, then shook his head. Nope. You're absolutely positive about that? Yep. No ice cream, no mint chip. Well, thank you very much. That helps a whole lot. You didn't find her in the freezer section of a grocery store. So what the heck kind of metal place was it? Eustace frowned in deep concentration. Dagan shook his head. This is a waste of time. He doesn't know. So these dreams told you to get her from this metal place? Nope. Joshua threw up his hands. They didn't? But you just said they did. We might as well be talking to a doorknob. Hey, doorknob, where'd this girl come from? Dagan smiled brutally. I could get to enjoy this. Now you know what it's like talking to you. He leaned close to Eustace. Okay, you've got to help us out here. Who was it who told you to get her? An odd look came into the huge man's face, and he remained silent. Come on, answer me. Finally, he murmured, up, up there, and pointed to the ceiling. Joshua stared at him. 
Okay, let's just step back and take an objectival sort of look at this whole predicament. What we got going here is a special needs janitor who definitely doesn't have all his screws in one basket who gets a message from upstairs to pick up an unconscious girl from a metal place. And by unconscious, might we suggest the very plausible potentiality of dead? whom he floats in a coffin so she can resurrect on this couch. Now I say again, does the slightest whisper of vampire enter your brain? Eustace started crying again and headed for the stairs. Gotta find, gotta find. Wearily, Dagon groaned. All right, go look for her, but don't go outside. After daylight, the storm is going to get much worse. When he was gone, Dagon slumped into a chair and buried his face in his hands. Staples reached into his pocket and pulled something out. Here's something to cheer you up. Found it on the floor here in the attic when we were searching for the girl. Pretty nice old thing if I do say so. It was a woman's ring with a crimson moon.